Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and I am super happy to have our next guest on this podcast, Jess Christiansen. Jess and I have worked on several projects over the years, but I guess the last one was probably five years ago. So Jess, how are you doing? I am good. Thanks so much for having me, Christian. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. It's great to talk with you once again. Uh, just where in the world are you these days? I'm, I'm based in LA, but I'm actually currently in Salt Lake, hometown and home of the games. Um, I, I was here visiting family and then our lovely coronavirus struck and I, I chose not to go back to California for, for the moment. So right here in Salt Lake. So you're just holed up in your parents' basement? <laughs> pretty much. It's like not where I expected to be, but it's it's pretty great. Well, I'm not in the basement because my wife actually let me move out of the basement into another room in the house. So I'm no longer technically in the basement. Congratulations. Happy to be, happy to be out of the basement. I've graduated and I'm no longer a child stuck in the basement. <laughs> someday. Someday I too will have that. So. Aside from being sequestered there in your parents' home during this coronavirus craziness, um, what else have you been up to? Well, um, I, you know, I, I, again, with coronavirus in the world of events, not much. <laughs> uh, I think we're all sort of scratching our heads and, and wondering what's going to be next with this great industry, but sort of in the last a uh, year or two, I have been working on big live entertainment projects like uh, Vegas um, artist residencies and touring concerts. Well, that sounds really exciting. And I totally understand uh, where everybody's hit the pause button in the event industry and we're all just in a holding pattern. I myself, is I'm in the same situation as uh, all of my work with the IOC and other events. It's just on hold a little bit while everybody tries to well, gather their bearings and figure out uh, what they're going to be doing here in the near future. So I totally, totally get it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're not here to talk about today, though, so much as we are to talk about what happened 20 years ago. Amazing. So it's been so fun to talk with guests. I have received a little bit of feedback that maybe I'm a little bit boring. So I'm going to try to amp my voice up a little bit. But what else do you expect from a person who is a, has an accounting degree and is a technology dude? And, you know, I'm, I'm the poster child for boringness. Although, Christian, I have to say, I know that you're an amazing dancer. So, you know, it's the oh. hair. <laughs> Let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> Take us back to Salt Lake. What what was your role there in Salt Lake? What were you doing? Uh, so I started out, I think my, my first title with Salt Lake 2002 was HR specialist. Um, and then when we moved into operations, I was assigned to the stadium for opening and closing ceremonies and became the HR manager for Rice-Eccles Stadium, uh, working with uh, Ron Cameron and his team. How did you end up in Salt Lake? I mean, what were you doing before Salt Lake? What was your journey like to get to the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? 
Um, so I think it's really interesting. And I love this question because um, I had sort of a 180 degree turn on the whole games experience. And um, when Salt Lake was bidding, my family uh, are very liberal and very environmentally active. And we actually um, actively protested the games coming to Salt Lake. Uh, and, you know, it was like a huge blow and we felt that it was going to be horrendous for Salt Lake City um, again. And that was, you know, when I was in high school and I went on to uh, get both an undergrad and a master's degree in French literature, which um, nobody thought was, uh, I think, useful or smart. But I was encouraged um, by my parents to sort of follow you know, what I loved. So that's what I studied. And um, of course, you have, you know, not many options work-wise when you do an advanced degree in French literature. Um, and I came back to Utah sort of not knowing what I was going to do and and got a job with the Sundance Film Festival managing uh, their volunteer department. And it was this sort of aha moment for me where I went, wait, like, people work for big events and this is so cool. And I, I did a couple of years of Sundance and loved that. And uh, then went and worked um, in a tech company doing marketing events for a big tech company in Austin, Texas. And uh, as the games grew closer and closer in Salt Lake, the sort of budding event aficionado in me um, got really excited about this you know, massive event happening in my hometown and, you know, when are the Olympic games ever going to be in your hometown? And that just doesn't happen very often. And I had Sundance contacts who were working at the organizing committee and I was able to sort of get my resume to the top of the, of the pile. And, and that's what brought me there. And I have to say, um, it, the whole experience that I had and even bringing my family into it and watching the games happen in Salt Lake, we were like, collectively as a family we were wrong like this is the best thing ever and so excited by that entire experience so it really was you know a, a sort of watershed moment for me working for the games and really seeing what happens during a, a winter olympic game well i'm super happy that your family came around and mm -hmm. and uh, said oh you know this actually isn't so terrible but at the moment that you were considering or contemplating it were they like um no, you can't go work for the Olympic Games. It's uh, it's terrible. Or had by that time, it had uh, their feelings softened a little bit towards the games. Um, I think I think they had come to sort of a resignation that it was going to happen. So you might as well deal with it, um, as opposed to being angry about it. Um, I think, like everyone, um, that lived in Salt Lake, you know, there was frustration with traffic and and some of the capital works that were happening in the city that slowed things down um you know but um my family knows I'm super independent and I think that they were just like okay if this is what you're gonna do this is what you're gonna do but the closer we got and the more I got excited about it and the more the city sort of amped up in preparation the more excited my family got and then I think certainly by the end of the games and seeing the outcome and seeing, um, you know, what it did for the city, especially on an international level. Um, you know, everybody was like, that was actually fantastic.
and super cool. So it was, it was, you know, kind of slow and then all at once that they came around. Well, you know, there are plans to try to pursue another games here in Salt Lake City. Would they be open to that? Or because there are a lot of people now in Salt Lake uh, and, you know, there are some concerns about, well, we've got too many people here and we don't need another event of this magnitude here in Salt Lake City. It just would be too disruptive. Um, no, they're full, fully on board. And I think that um, they would be super excited. And for the last, I don't know, four or five years that Salt Lake has sort of hinted that they may want to host the games again. And that is the most common piece of news that my family has shared with me. And, and I think they're super excited about the prospect. And uh, um, I've also <laughs> sort of gotten them on board of, no, definitely Salt Lake over Denver, because we don't need to build um, you know, another sliding center, for example, it's actually like Salt Lake would be the um, conservationist choice because you're not, you know, putting another, you know, huge amount of infrastructure um, in a neighboring state when we've already got it, uh, you know, sort of well managed and well planned and, and well underway, certainly for a, another future games here in Salt Lake. So, um, I think they're excited about all of that, but um, I get a lot of like, but we like that would mean you would come home, right? Like you would come here and, and work in Salt Lake again. So, you know, uh, you, parents and family want you to be close. And I, I get a lot of excitement about that aspect of Salt Lake potentially hosting the games again. Uh, hope springs eternal for parents uh, reuniting with their children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel that I've got four kids and three of them are gone. I just have one left and will be empty nesters soon. And yeah, I, I, I want to keep them close. So I understand the parental need to try to keep uh, close proximity with your children. Um, maybe you said this earlier and I just, and I just let it uh, skip out my brain, but uh, when did you actually join the organizing committee and what were some of your early memories, uh, you know, your first weeks there in the organizing committee that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Sure. So I, um, I <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember exactly when I joined the organizing committee, but I remember that I had just over a year's tenure. I was, you know, one, sort of one of the last ones in. So it would have been um, spring of 2001. And um, it honestly, in comparison to Sundance um, and to the, uh, you know, high tech experience that I had, it felt very corporate to me. It was sort of my first big corporate feeling job. Um, and I definitely felt that there was like a lot more uh, layers and structure to things that I wasn't familiar with. And I, I have to laugh at that now, having spent a lot more time in the Olympic movement, because as you know, it's pretty layered and pretty deep and pretty structured. So um, I think that was definitely one of the, the first impressions that I had. Um, and our office was also in the a uh, smaller building. It wasn't in the high rise. Uh, so there was a little bit of like a disconnect that I felt right off the bat. Um, and interestingly enough, I sort of felt like for me, and this, this is kind of random, but my first real major memory um, 
at at Flock prior to um, heading, you know, out and being in venues and being operational was um, being there the morning of 9-11 um, and sort of standing and watching televisions with colleagues um, as, as, you know, subsequent planes hit and all just sort of not knowing what to think, not what knowing what to do. And it was this moment that sort of, at least for the team that I was on, really catalyzed us as a team and, and brought us together. And, and, you know, I mean, of course it was like, you know, such a moment for everyone, but my memory is indelibly tied to my time at, at, at SWOC. That's so interesting. You bring that up. It's, it's a, it's a common memory that pretty much everybody on this podcast has shared is where they were Mm -hmm. uh, when they found out. Uh, for me, I was driving in my car and listening to music, so I didn't even know anything had happened until I arrived at the office and saw a couple of people watching television. And uh, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Haven't you yeah. heard? Yeah. And uh, we ended up all going across the street from the the main office over to Jamie Shaw's apartment. You remember Jamie? And uh, we watched it there until we were all told to go home, and so we we left. What a surreal day! So surreal. So surreal. All right. Well, let's try to uh, lighten the mood a little bit yeah. uh, after 9-11. Um, so you ended up working out at the venue. When did you actually make that move from from the office out to the venue itself? Uh, it was it was pretty quick after after September of 2001, if I remember correctly. And um, I believe the stadium went operational, you know, obviously quite a bit earlier than a lot of the other venues because we had rehearsals going on. So I want to say that by the end of September or early October, we were in venues um, and, you know, starting to ramp up operations at the stadium with rehearsals starting there pretty quickly. And the games are an interesting animal, I guess you'd say, because you work as a functional area and you build a bit of a family there. And then you kind of transition into this venue team and you develop this venue family there. So as you look at your families, the functional area family and also the the venue family, if you will, uh, who are some of the people that you interacted with there on your teams that really helped it feel like family that you really enjoyed being around with, uh, being around on a daily basis? Um, I absolutely adored working with Ron Cameron. Uh, and I just, I thought he was like a great venue manager and I loved that he was like super laid back and kind of, you know, rock and roll. And, um, I just, I remember feeling really seen and included and, um, you know, he, he had such a great team and, and, um, I think was, you know, such a, such an awesome leader for that venue. And then I spent a lot of time, I think, working with um, Paul Florence and Paul Foster as well on, on sort of the, you know, Olympic family and international relations of it all and, and loved both of them and their senses of humor and, and sort of the way that they approached everything. Um, And yeah, I, I mean, that's sort of, it's so funny to go back and think about it all because I haven't for a while, but it it was just like a really, I think the stakes are really high at the Olympic stadium and it could have been an incredibly 
you know, stressful pressure cooker of a situation. And I think the entire team that we had there were like, okay, like what's coming at us. Okay, great. Like we're going to figure it out. We're going to fix it. And so it was great to see, especially in retrospect, how cool and how um, sort of laid back yet hyper-functional a venue team could be. And that venue is a bit unique in, in the games because with ceremonies, you've, you've got this humongous production, you've got thousands of cast members, and you've got paid staff and volunteers that will come and work that ceremony and then leave and go and do other things and then may come back for the closing ceremony. So tell us about that interesting, unique dynamic of working a ceremonies venue. Sure. So I think one of my first and major tasks as the HR manager for for the stadium um, was putting the 5,000 contractors, staff, performers, et cetera, through venue-specific training. Um, and I think it took six to eight weeks to get that number of people through through the training. And it went from every contractor working on the venue to every full-time um, person working on the venue to the entire ceremonies team, the entire cast, all of that. Um, they all had to go through that. So it, it was cool for me. And a Certainly as, uh, you know, my first ever Olympic experience, because there's not a stakeholder group that doesn't touch the stadium. And um, so we really had to be aware of, you know, every both internal and external stakeholder group that was coming in and out of those, um, out of that venue and how they were getting there and how they were getting, you know, through security and, and you know, how do you know, like how to evacuate thousands and thousands of people and how do we work together as a staff to do that and everything I think the scale is just um a little bit bigger there and I think just on a really personal level one of the things that was really funny and sort of cool for me was that um one of the performing groups was the Utah Symphony and my mom is a member of the Utah Symphony and uh I had to put the entire Utah Symphony through training and um I I was born into the Utah Symphony. I knew so many of those people as, you know, almost like aunts and uncles who had been, you know, playing with my mom and and over for dinner and I'd been, you know, backstage for rehearsals and performances and I took my first steps on tour with Utah Symphony members there watching. Um, and it was this really sort of funny and sweet and super weird. And I felt, you know, really nervous to do that training session with them because I knew them so personally. And I, I feel like they were all sort of beaming at me going, oh, it's so cute. She's got a real job, <laughs> you know. Um, that was sort of one of my cool slash fun memories of, of having to get that massive group of people through, you know, through their training. Oh, that's super awesome. I can just see the symphony members just think, Oh, look, it's little Jess here doing the training. This is so fun and exciting. Yeah, it, it was amazing. And I think one of the things that we talked about a lot in that training 
um, was how secretive we had to be and how it was, you know, you can't talk about who was performing. You can't talk about um, who you see come in and out. You can't talk about the cast. You can't talk about the costumes. Like it's all completely embargoed. And, you know, that was one of the major points for all of the training, but certainly for uh, the Utah Symphony. And I came home that, and I either that night or the next night I had um, sort of a big family dinner and the symphony had gone through their training and straight into a rehearsal. And we go to the family dinner and there's like extended family who knew nothing about the games or the ceremonies there. And my mom goes, Oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. Steve's going to perform. And he walked by me during the rehearsal and I just reached out and touched him. I was like, mom, did you not listen to the training yesterday? You can't talk about that. And she's like, well, everybody knows. But I said, no, mom. No, they don't. <laughs> so I had to put the lockdown on my whole family on letting anyone know that Sting was going to be performing after that. <laughs> yeah, hard to keep secrets. Hard to keep secrets when yeah. you have these big performers around. Staging a ceremony is a super challenging. Were there any uh, particular challenges that the, that the team faced preparing for or executing the ceremony? Um, you know, I think, you know, things were going well. Rehearsals were going well. Um, you know, I think we had a few little delays with some of the construction and seats going in, if I remember correctly, but it didn't. Um, really, you know, impede rehearsals. And I also remember that as one of the best offices I've ever had, because we were in uh, sort of the the uh, media suites overlooking the field of play. Um, and it was super exciting, because every time we heard music come on, we jump up and see, you know, what section of the ceremony that they were uh, watching. And that was, you know, super fun and super excited. But I think that there's me super exciting but I think the thing that sort of struck me the most was um I want to say about a week out we had a huge venue team meeting and it had been so busy with rehearsals that it had been you know a couple weeks since we'd actually had the entire venue team there and um the medical team for the venue gave a short presentation and we were having extraordinarily cold weather um, and the medical team said, if in the next week, the temperature doesn't raise by three to five degrees, we will have deaths by freezing during opening ceremony. And we need to have a contingency plan for when that happens. And it was this moment for me that I just sort of went, oh, like, wow, you know, like shit just got real in that moment. And it was sort of like, okay, we have to be prepared for literally every scenario. And um, luckily, the weather did warm up a little bit. And we did not have to contend with that. But that was a moment where I was like, this is a huge international event. We are going to have 1000s upon 1000s of people here. And it is our job as a team to sort of take care of them. Yeah, at a minimum, just keep everybody alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. We don't want yeah. any people dying yeah. of of the of the cold there on the field of play now 
you've got this big workforce there. Uh, part of the responsibility of a of a workforce manager is to make sure that everybody is motivated, and you you know you have all kinds of little fun things that you do. What were some of what were some of the fun things that you did uh, leading up to and during the games to just keep everybody motivated and excited? Um, you know, having worked at Sundance um, and and doing uh, the volunteer management there, um, one of the things that I learned was, um, and let me step back, you know, it was volunteers at Sundance, but so much of uh, the people, so many of the people working at the stadium were also volunteers. So we had, you know, huge volunteer workforce and volunteer cast. So probably about at least half of the people coming on and off that venue were there, um, on their own dime and by their own choice. And, um, I think, you know, when you're not getting a paycheck and you're being asked to spend eight hours, you know, on a, stadium in a stadium corridor when it's freezing cold outside you know that is hard and that is a sacrifice and and so a lot of my um a lot of my energy just went into making sure those people felt appreciated and um one thing I did at Sundance was I was like I had I think I had 600 volunteers and I was like I'm going to know every single one of their names by the end of this and I'm going to try and remember like one fact about them and then you get to the stadium and it's like 5000 people and I was like I don't I don't think I can do 5000 but um <laughs> I really focused on uh knowing names to the extent that I could I did I I probably walked that stadium 20 times a day when we were operational to just say hi to everybody how are you doing you know do you need a small break are you good you know how are you feeling about things and just sort of trying to engage people in conversation and know that they were cared about thought about uh, you know that we were we were there for them you know even when it got long hours or late nights or whatever whatever it was but yeah I, I you know I wish I'd had a Fitbit at that time because I bet I would have been clocking 30,000 steps every day like just running into people and saying hi to people and and all that good stuff and I honestly that's the beauty of, of being the HR managers once you're up and running Generally, it's just about making people feel seen and heard and 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 happy. And that was something that I really enjoyed because I just I did feel like I got a connection with so many people. Well, Jess, uh, the Salt Lake Games were not the not the end of your Olympic journey, but they were the beginning. Uh, what have you yeah. been doing since the Salt Lake Games ended? And how did those games impact your career and your life? Um, I I so, so love Olympic values. And, and Salt Lake was sort of just my initial um, understanding of, of that. Um, I think one of my personal quirks during the games... Um, it was just a total obsession with Australia and Australians because we had so many um, come on the staff, but it sort of opened my eyes up a little bit. And I was like, wait a minute, there's these cool international events. There's super cool people that travel all over the world doing these events. And maybe I could actually do that. So, you know, sort of having Aussie friends um, during Salt Lake, it gave me 
this idea that maybe my Olympic experience didn't need to end. Um, and so following the Paralympic Games, I, um, along with another friend who had not worked for the organizing committee, but for, uh, you know, one of the many suppliers that had worked on the games in, in Salt Lake, we both, um, I think, took our, I took my slock bonus and she took her you know, end of games bonus. And I sold my car and we moved to Athens and we were like, we're going to find, we're going to find Olympic jobs in Athens. And, um, which I think, you know, I'm so happy I took that risk at, at 26 years old or, or whatever, because A, I could, I didn't have a lot of other responsibility, but B, that, you know, old adage that with great risk comes great reward really paid off for me. And, in the process of, of being in Athens and uh, networking and just trying to find um, a job, I actually got connected with the International Olympic Committee's marketing department. Um, and they were looking for someone who uh, had participated in a game, who had worked, you know, with large American companies and, and could, you know, fit in with the sort of co corporate structure that IOC marketing works with, that they also wanted someone who spoke fluent French and, and I had that sort of, you know, unique yet very random skill set. And uh, I ended up getting hired um, by the IOC. I got my job offer on my 27th birthday, which was amazing. And then spent um, about four and a half years with uh, IOC marketing um, and did both Athens and Torino with um, with the IOC. And that's when I really, 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 you know, learned, um, you know, all of the Olympic values and all of the amazing things that the Olympic Games brings to the table outside of just the games with, you know, Olympic solidarity and sport for all and, and how much time and attention and energy that organization puts into you know, trying to, trying to make the world a better place. And, and, uh, you know, I, I loved that. I was pretty obsessed with it. I, I still am. I still really believe in, you know, Olympic tenets, Olympic values. I think it's one of the most exciting things that happens. Um, I think when I was at the IOC, I, uh, during Athens, I, you know, you learn a lot about yourself during these events. And, um, what I learned in Athens is that I don't care what the sport is. If it's live, I'm so excited to watch it. Like synchronized swimming, amazing. Synchronized diving, super weird, but also amazing. Like random cycling events you've never heard about. Awesome. You know, and I, I just kind of went, okay, like if it's live, I'm going to super enjoy it. Um, and following the IOC, I, uh, I um, came back to Utah. I did some more time with the Sundance Film Festival. It's sort of like the Olympics and Sundance are my kind of go-to, <laughs> go-to uh, worlds, I guess. And I, I love both of those events. And, um, but I, after a couple of years of Sundance, I really missed the games. Um, I got a job in Vancouver with Live Nation Canada, working as the associate producer for the live site there in Vancouver, which was another fantastic winter games um 
I think probably one of the best sporting events I've ever been to was the gold medal match when, when Canada won. And I shouldn't say I was there. I was at the live site and, and of course we broadcast live, but that was incredible. Um, and that actually, that experience led me to a relationship with uh, Scott Givens and Five Currents. And I was then um, brought on with Five Currents and spent almost six years with them working on ceremonies, which sort of took me back to my initial flock experience of being at the stadium and, and prepping for ceremonies and everything. And, and of course, that's when I met you, which is fantastic. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's been a huge part of my life. And I, I can't, I, I really honestly can't even conceive of, of what path my life would have taken had I not had that experience at SLOC. Jess, I really appreciate you taking time to share some of these amazing memories with us. Before I let you go, we have a little assignment for you. Yes. And uh, so we're asking all of our guests three questions. And those questions revolve around a song and food <laughs> and an Olympic memory of the Salt Lake 2002 game. So we'll take the song question first. If you can, give us a song that you listen to when you were working for the Salt Lake Organizing Committee that whenever you hear it, it just takes you right back to slock. Yeah. So um, the, the movie Moulin Rouge had come out, um, I think in, in probably 2001. And um, <laughs> like super embarrassing, but there was like a techno remix of the song Come What May. And I... I drove a Jetta at the time. I had that like on my CD player in my Jetta and just driving to and from, you know, home back and forth to the stadium. It was like, I just had that song on repeat. Techno so come Mou what may. <laughs> Mou Moulin Rouge come, come what may. The techno version. Yeah. <laughs> on a CD. Like who is actually listens to CDs anymore, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, we're going to add that to our Spotify playlist. We've, we've got seven songs on there right now. So everybody check out the Spotify playlist because we've got some interesting things there. I'm surprised you didn't nominate Sidious Altius Fortius with your mom playing in the symphony. You know, I was going to say that that was probably uh, like the, I think the Utah symphony came out with a whole Salt Lake 2002 CD, which I absolutely loved. And it had some of the stuff from um, opening ceremony. And there was sort of like a pioneer song of people like sitting around the campfire that was gorgeous. And I loved that. And of course, having that CD um, with my mom playing on it was amazing. But I think the day-to-day the -day was, <laughs> was Techno Moulin Rouge. All right, Moulin Rouge it is. And I might throw some uh, <laughs> symphony on there too, just, just for fun. Awesome. Now for the food. Um, was there a particular restaurant or food that you liked to eat when you were working there in Salt Lake? Um, so I feel like everybody went, uh, was it called the globe, which is now no longer there, but I loved that place that was close to the office. Um, I think one of the things that we laughed about a lot and, um, sort of shied away from after a moment uh, in the smaller building when we weren't yet on venues, there's like a Quiznos across the street. 
And we loved just like walking across the street and going to Quiznos. But then all of us girls realized that every time we came back from lunch at Quiznos, our hair would smell of burnt toast. (laughs) (laughs) Which was like such a random memory, but it was like, I just remember smelling like burnt toast in the afternoons in that, (laughs) in that building. So we had to, you know, stop that. But um, I would say the other restaurant and, and this harkens back to nine 11, but when, when they sent us to home um, that day, I actually went with uh, a couple people to the Blue Plate Diner um, in Sugar House, and we sat and drank milkshakes and watched the news. What a crazy memory that is! Blue Plate Isn't Diner, it? milkshakes, yep. watching and milkshakes, watching the the news. Oh, incredible! Yeah. All right. Well. Let's go back to your favorite memory of those games. It could be something, a competition. You mentioned you love watching sport live. Uh, It could be something with the ceremony. It could have been something behind the scenes. But as you look back to your time in Salt Lake, what is your ultimate favorite Olympic memory? Um, For me, I think it would have to be closing ceremony um, at the stadium. I think, you know, as staff, you're sort of, smelling the proverbial barn and you know that you know you're sort of almost almost done with a successful games and that is really exciting and then as you know you're sort of fatigued and and overwhelmed by everything but um when Bon Jovi started playing and I think there was like people on jumping stilts on the field of play and there was paintballs being thrown and balloons and confetti and it was like to this day that's my favorite closing ceremony of any closing ceremony I've ever been to it just felt like such an intense celebration and I was sitting with other stadium staff watching it all I in fact I think we had gone to the roof of the stadium um, which we were not supposed to do but which we did anyways and it was just this like euphoric awesome hell yeah, we did this. It's amazing. Like, congratulations. This is the coolest thing we've ever seen. And, and, you know, all the soundtrack of Bon Jovi. So gotta love it. Yeah. It was a massive party. It was just a huge party. It was a huge amount of fun and it was an opportunity for everybody to celebrate. I think the statute of limitations yeah. expired yeah, on the, um, the misdemeanor going up to the roof uh, without permission. So probably yeah. safe to share that story. Well, Jess, this has been huge fun. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of those memories. If people want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing and the projects that you're involved in, uh, how might they best do that? Sure. Um, I would love that. I love hearing from any of my former SWAT colleagues. Um, uh, Probably best is email. And my Gmail is jess.christiansen at gmail.com. So it's J-E-S-S dot C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-E-N at gmail.com. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jess. Listeners, please like and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. Awesome. Thanks, Christian.